Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for being here. If you're new here, my name's Ari and I am a action sports athlete who is using his podcast to lift up on humanity in any way I can by encouraging more resilience in our communities, by encouraging people to understand how to make meaning in their lives and to bring you nuanced conversations with people who have perspective. Today, I'm stoked to bring you my friend, Jeff Shapiro. Jeff is a wingsuit base jumper. He's a hang glide pilot. He's a paraglide pilot. He just got his private pilot's license and a bush plane. And we talk about that a lot on this episode. He's an amazingly insightful person and very poetic in his prose. So I know that you are going to enjoy this podcast. And if you want to support this podcast, which I really appreciate, you can donate at paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate all the people who have been donating. Scott Greenstone, Jordan Robeson, those are the last two donors. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Consider sharing and subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes. That really helps. And without further ado, here's a little music and an interview with my friend, Jeff Shapiro. Okay, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, man, thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, so one thing that uh, has happened in your life since we last talked was you became a fixed wing pilot and got yourself uh, what is pretty much an incredible bush plane. So tell me about your how long you've been wanting to fly fixed wing and what this process has been and what do you have there in the hangar and what that whole thing is about. Nice, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a super fun new adventure. I, um, you know, like you, I'm not really attracted these days to, you know, being the best at anything as much as I am just learning new skills and flying, uh, has been such a big part of my life that learning how to fly different types of aircraft, um, yeah, super cool opportunity. And of course the ones that typically interest guys like us are the ones that, uh, allow us access into beautiful places. And, um, so the idea of flying a bush plane actually came, uh, sort of organically in that way. I was up doing a expedition flying my paraglider with, um, a friend across the Anwar, um, the Arctic national wildlife refuge in the Eastern Brooks range. And because that is such a remote area, um, this was last last summer. Uh, because that area is so remote, it had to be the expedition had to be supported by uh, Super Cup. Um, we physically could only really carry about ten days of food and fuel on top of all of our baby gear and stuff, uh, which you know was sixty five pound packs. Doesn't sound like it's that big, but walking on tussock and trying to be self supportive, it just seemed to make most the most sense for us to do our 20 days in the mountains in with one food drop in the middle. So a buddy of mine, uh, was going to fly his cub in and, um, and land somewhere along the route. Uh, we would just send him messages via inReach, and he would drop off another 10 days of food and fuel. Um, but other than that, we would be completely self-supported on that mission. And then at the end, wherever we ended up, you know, we really wanted to do it just for the sake of adventure. So we didn't want to have goals or expectations. So it was just kind of this open adventure that we could move freely across the mountain range based on what was going on in the sky and the weather. And, um, and then at the end, someone would, hopefully we would get to a place where someone could come pick us up in a super cup. 
so that was that was the that was the deal and uh when i got there um cody was uh delayed on one of his flights and was going to be about 12 hours later than he originally expected which was already a few hours after i got there so i had some time on my hands and my buddy the guy who picked me up and was supporting the mission um is a legendary bush pilot he's a total cowboy and just the most awesome um person that I've met in the recent past on top of being, like I said, just an absolute legend, uh, Bush pilot. Um, this guy, Johnny Olson, he, he drove me back to his place and was just like, Hey man, you, uh, you, we got some time. You, you, you want to go flying? And I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, well, okay, get in the front seat. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Get in the front seat, man. And you know, over the years from get being yanked into the sky, in hang gliding competitions by dragonflies, I, I, I had maybe uh, 10, between 10 and 20, well, probably closer to 10 hours of stick and rudder, not nothing to speak of. And, and yet just enough to know how fun it was. And, um, you know, in that first two hour flight in the super cub, I mean, I was completely and utterly hooked. Johnny had me landing on grass strips and, um, some gravel bars and, um, you know, just typical off airport stuff that's around his place in Fairbanks and, uh, you know, slipping the airplane into landing and flying on the backside of the power curve and, and all these things to show me the capabilities of this amazing airplane that you kind of wear more than climb in, you know, I mean, when you're in a super cub in the front seat of a super cub, it's just, it's a tandem airplane. So pilot sits in the front and the passenger sits directly behind the pilot and there's a window off of each of your shoulders uh, with, you know, stick and pilot being directly on the center line of the airplane. So you like, you like put the airplane on, you know, you don't like sit in it, you, you like wear it, you know? <laughs> and, um, and it's such an amazing airplane to fly. Um, and so capable. And of course his was just completely rigged, you know, it had 35 inch Tundra tires and, um, shocks and, and a stole kit. So it, it had been heavily modded and, and was, uh, designed to basically land on bowling balls in a hundred feet. And, um, so, you know, needless to say, I was like my mind, even all, all the way across the, the Anwar and, you know, we're flying paragliders and having this amazing time. It certainly wasn't that I was wishing I was somewhere else, but man, laying in the tent, especially on the stormy days, I was, my mind was on bush planes, you know? And it's funny cause I, it, it's, it's not, um, I hadn't really been, uh, attracted to powered flight so much. Uh, although I've always dreamed of flying an airplane or helicopter, even I think my fifth grade career report was done on, uh, being a pilot, you know, it was one of those things I, I've always wanted to fly. Um, maybe at that age, I didn't know that things like hang gliding and paragliding were options, but, um, but anyways, I've always had this just absolute fascination with, with flight. So, um, either way during that expedition, all I could think about was figuring out how to fly uh, a bush plane. First of all, for airplanes, they have a very small carbon footprint. You know, I mean, relatively, um, you're spending less fuel and, uh, emissions than driving. Um, you know, my plane is not thirsty at all. It, she burns like seven gallons an hour, um, and hundred low leads pretty, pretty inert. So, you know, in other words, um, you know, I spend a single tank of gas to go over 500 miles, uh, where, you know, that's not, you you couldn't say that in a car. Um, and certainly, you know, 150 gallon, 180 gallons an hour in a commuter jet is, um, is a far cry from seven. So to me for traveling to and from to see friends and certainly to access the back country for, climbing and jumping and flying paragliders and speed wings, a bush plane just makes sense. But on top of that, it's just a absolute blast to fly because they're made to go low and slow. You can get, it's not like you're flying over the mountains. You are flying in the mountains. You know, you, you can fly through a mountain range and never be more than 300 feet off the ground if you wanted. And, um, and because of their capabilities, stole is uh, an acronym for short takeoffs and landings because you can land uh, in very small areas and take off in very small areas. Um, the airplane uh, becomes a, a you know a very very um, 
uh, you know, realistic way to get into some remote places, you know, like the Alaskans say, you know, uh, fly an hour or walk a week, you know, it's up to you. Um, so, so, you know, anyways, I, I ended up getting back from that trip and, um, my, I mean, I was like, you know, completely and utterly drooling over bush planes and figuring out sort of all of the, the logistics to make it happen. And, um, as these things go, you know, when you just want something, um, bad enough and in a way that, um, that, uh, seems to, um, promote adding a lot to your life, you know, uh, yeah. you can kind of manifest them. I'm, I don't have money, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck just like everybody else. So how do I, how does a normal dude that is, you know, struggling to pay a mortgage, uh, own a plane and, or learn how to fly a plane. And, you know, fortunately for me, I, I mean, I'm super, super lucky to have lots of friends that are pilots just from the hang gliding and paragliding world. I got a bu bunch of buddies who are, um, airline captains and, uh, and or CFIs or, or flight instructors. So, um, you know, uh, debt is a way of life <laughs> for me. So, uh, I found, I started searching for and found, um, I figured that everything was going to be more expensive and take more time than, than I, uh, wanted. Um, so if, if I was going the used route, I should try and find something that was as close to what I felt like I wanted relative to capabilities that I could get. And, uh, with the help of, um, some of my, my good friends, uh, and, um, certainly the support of some of the folks in my life that, that do support these towards these types of things for me. Um, you know, I found a, uh, a bush plane over in Toronto that was, um, you know, that was like set up plug and play. And, um, you know, the, the projects that I had planned to do or that I have planned to do with this airplane, um, and, some of the folks that, um, are involved in those projects signed on and agreed to, to the idea of, of this airplane being right, a good fit for some, some future projects. So, um, I went and, and picked up the airplane in, in Toronto with a good buddy of mine, who's a CFI sitting in the back seat, and we flew across the country together. Uh, but because he was an instructor, we were able to log all, or I was able to log all those hours towards my license. Um, so, you know, I had quite a bit going for me relative to, um, the help of some really good friends that were out for an adventure and, and also willing to help me learn. And, um, you know, just like hang gliding to paragliding, uh, flying an airplane, you know, flying anything, the concepts, aerodynamic concepts, uh, the micro met involved with flying, um, you know, where to be, where not to be, uh, how to make good decisions, um, and all of the intuition that comes from experience from flying a lot, um, that's all applicable to an airplane. The, the difference is, is obviously the aircraft has a whole new set of limitations and, a, and it requires a new skill set, uh, for flying it. So, you know, I have to do the steps necessary and learn how to fly this thing, um, in a way that keeps me and my passenger safe and um follows rules that are involved with general aviation you know just knowing um all there is to know about airspace and restrictions and regulations um so that i can fly appropriately and then also um to apply all that i know from 28 years of flying uh and um yeah i was really fortunate to get the hours and do the endorsements you know earn the endorsements necessary to get my private pilot's license um, a good friend of mine who I used to fly hang gliders with 20 years ago. In fact, I think we did our tandem and instructor ratings together. It must've been tw almost 25 years ago. Now he was a captain for United and, and a re he's retired now, but he's still a DPE, which is a examiner flight flight examiner. And, um, you know, he got a hold of me online and, and, uh, wanted to come out and visit and offered to, uh, do my check ride with me. And, um, he's a bit of a stickler. So it was really nice to, to do, uh, to do my check ride with a good friend that was made it less, less anxious experience, but also with someone who was super experienced and super knowledgeable and very thorough. So he put me through it and we did the, um, the oral and the check ride together and, and I earned the, my, my pilot's license and, um, 
have been working on the airplane to make it even more sort of my own and, and capable of the mission that, that I'm interested in, which is to fly into off airport areas and in, in the back country as often as possible. And I've just been flying the piss out of that thing, just flying it as, as much as I possibly can to, uh, you know, nothing trades airtime. Right. So I'm just like, you know, sitting, sitting behind the stick every day that I possibly can. And, and when the weather allows flying into the mountains and, and when it doesn't, then I go to a local grass strip and just practice my short field takeoffs and landings and, and, um, stole techniques and everything that I can to keep myself learning and, and, you know, gaining proficiency. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Congratulations on that. That airplane is so beautiful and Thanks. what an amazing thing a bush plane is. I have a friend here who's a aeronautics engineer and has a 182 that has that same kind of, you know, big bush tires and extra leading edge and all this shit and a bigger engine. And, uh, he took me out and we went camping one time and we just landed in this little strip that like, yeah, like you said, you'd have to walk a week to get there. The only people you ever see are the rafters that go by on the river, but yeah, there's exactly. just like nothing there. And we just come around the corner we're flying super low to the ground and we just come around the corner. He just spots it and lands it, you know, just on one pass. He's been there numerous times and just the experience of being so remote, so casually, it's like, it's like, um, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that paragliding or hang gliding does for us. It really like, kind of like opens up another dimension in our minds and it, yeah, yeah, yeah it forces us to understand our own place and like the space that we inhabit in another way, because it's as comfortable as a fucking sedan, but all of a sudden you are just poof. You are just so remote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, um, it, it provides its own level of concerns and, and, um, interesting problems to solve. You know, it's like, yes, it is cool. And very strange for me to be super deep in tiger country, like, you know, tundra tires off the treetops and to, you know, not be looking for the glide out, right? Like, you know, (laughs) to be that deep in a paraglider or hang glider, like you're always looking to get high, you know, you always want to get tall so that you have a glide and have options. Right. And in an airplane, um, you know, oftentimes to get out of the wind, you're flying lower in the canyons on one side or the other, um, to leave yourself room to turn around. But, you know, if it's blowing hard in the uppers, you can stay, um, you know, safely in the Lee, uh, in an airplane. Um, but, but, you know, they are simple, uh, carbureted four cylinder, uh, airplane engines, you know, and, uh, having an engine out in an airplane, um, over miles and miles of tiger country is a serious, that's a serious situation. So really serious. Yeah. So, so, you know, you are, um, and you've got better glide in the hang glider than you do in the bush plane. For sure, but my plane is has got a lot of wings, so it actually does have a great glide, and um, I practice a lot. Uh, you know, engine out scenarios are something that I practice quite often, um, and at different altitudes. You know, even you take off and at you know 500 feet or even sometimes less, I'll dump to idle and try and get the plane turned around and back on the runway, um, and certainly from high you know, configuring it to land and go into best glide. Um, it is funny that, you know, guiding paraglider pilots in Columbia, oftentimes our clients are, are fixed wing pilots and some are fighter pilots, you know, guys that fly, make the living flying F-18s or F-15s or, or Harriers or whatever, you know. And what's interesting is those guys are aces, but I think that it's easier to come from gliding flight to motorized flight than it is from motorized flight to gliding flight. Um, because you know, when I do engine out scenarios, like that flight, that glide slope and that, that sight picture is, is something that, you know, we're quite used to. And obviously anytime you land a high performance hang glider on an unfamiliar, uh, mountain LZ when you're landing out, you know, like during a comp or something, if you're, you know, you fly a, a, a course line and it puts you somewhere deep in the Alps and, and you, you know, you end up landing short, you're landing in an unfamiliar place and the term go around doesn't exist. Like we, we there is no go around. You, you, you pick a landing spot, you make good decisions and you set up a responsible approach and you land. 
And that, that applies to flying the airplane. Uh, once you've gained the skills to land at a slow speed, which these bush planes have the ability to do so, um, you know, you just set your airplane up for that configuration. You pick a, uh, the most, uh, reasonable spot and, and you put her down safe. And in a normal airplane, you know, any single engine high wing Cessna or any other airplane that's designed to fly from airport to airport, um, soft field landings can be quite hazardous because, you know, you end up in soft ground and you dig a nose wheel or, um, or whatever you end up, you know, going prop first and flipping the plane or ground looping or whatever. So it is a huge benefit to have an airplane that's got shocks and big tundra tires, um, and, a you know, a, a tail wheel that, that equals uh, tundra tire, you know, they call them a baby bush wheel so that I can, you know, land on a pretty much anywhere, um, off air. I don't need an airstrip at all to land safely as long as I use good technique. And it requires a very small amount of space, you know, in no wind, my plane will land consistently in 250 feet or less. And if I have 10 knots on the prop, I mean, 15 knots on the prop, I'm landing in two airplane lengths, you know, or even less. So yeah. that thing, um, that thing's really capable, which for me and the type of flying that I'm interested in just increases the value of safety, you know, um, or the margin for safety. It's just, a, um, it, it helps to ensure that even if I had to put that thing in the trees, if I fly it slow enough and yeah. jump into the trees, I might total the airplane, but the way that airframe is built, uh, it's likely I'll survive it, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, obviously whatever, but, um, I, I, they're, they're a really, really, really cool aircraft. They're some of the coolest. They are really some of the coolest. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I can't wait to get into that thing with you. So yeah, keep up the skills. I would love to get in the back of that damn Thanks, airplane. Yeah. With you. yeah I, I'm looking forward to it too. I mean, I, I took, um, Tyler brought for a flight yesterday and we were cruising on the river, you know, like 10 feet off the water and just carving and below treetop level. And it was, dude, we were both laughing out loud. It's such a riot to fly. Um, but, but the coolest thing is, is, you know, you think that we see so much backcountry from hang gliders and paragliders, man, from an airplane, the amount of ground that are just beautiful yeah. terrain that we cover in an hour's flight is, I mean, it's just stupid. It's amazing. You, you, I mean, I, I flew over 600 head of elk the other day. You're seeing animals. You're seeing these ridgelines. I get to go and fly, put a wingtip 100 feet off of an of a peak that I haven't, I've never seen, and it's been in my backyard for 25 years. You know, and get to look at alpine conditions and and you know new root potential and uh, potential for new base exits and um, you know, fly a line that I might have interested me in a paraglider that on that you know magic day I'll be able to try with a little peace of mind that I know that there's that LZ that you can't really see unless you were to walk about four days to get to, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a cool tool and, um, and it's a riot to fly. And I think that, um, you know, uh, it's accessible. That's the other, the other part about it that I, I like it's accessible to anybody. You know, my partner wants to learn how to fly it. My daughter wants to learn how to fly. I think anybody, who has, um, interest in, and the capability to do so, um, you know, if they can, you know, pull together some, some resources and are maybe lucky enough to know some folks that are willing to help them, uh, anybody can do it. And that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's super awesome. It's one of my dreams to have a, I think, honestly, I think I'd prefer the 182 just for the cargo room, just to haul my family around in. That's kind of like the dream that I have in my mind, but definitely the really small, super potent bush planes are hard to argue with. Well, but, I mean, they all, they're all different missions, right? Like mm -hmm. the 182 is, it's a moose hauler. I mean, it's awesome. And you can get a 182, especially on, you know, 26s or uh, I can't remember if they're STC for 29s, but even with, with big tires set up as a tail dragger, you know, you can put a 182 into pretty much anywhere that's got a grass strip. A 182 isn't going to be as capable in landing on gravel bars or off airport in places. I mean, guys in Alaska use them all the time and they're, you know, aces can put them anywhere, but, but they're, they're maybe not because they're not so light. Um, and they require so much power. They're maybe not as, uh, they're, they're not as ideal for like super short off airport stuff, 
but because they can haul so much, they're ideal for other things, right? Whereas, you know, a super cub might be super light and, um, you know, but you're limited for one passenger with one passenger and some gear. Um, my plane is kind of a middle ground. Mine, mine is a, um, is a kit. It's an experimental airplane that was built by a company in Wyoming called Backcountry Super Cubs. And it's a kit, uh, it's a super cub replica, but it's a wide bodied cub. So it's, it's got a wider back seat, um, and a little more room in the fuselage. Um, I got huge amounts of baggage storage. It's got a, a big squared off PA 18 wing and, um, super cub tail feathers and extended inch and a half axle, um, super cub landing gear. Uh, and I have a extended, it's like an 84 inch carbon climb prop, uh, and a lot of power. So my airplane's very capable and still is very light, but it's got a gross capacity of 2,400 pounds and it weighs around 1200 naked. So that, you know, with me sitting in the front seat and full fuel tanks, I have, um, two 24 gallon fuel tanks. So 48 gallon capacity. I still have over 700 pounds to, to work with. So I can That's put, two, good. yeah, I could put two people in gear and my, I mean, my plane was designed to take a client and a moose out of the mountains. So That's it awesome. actually, it actually does haul quite a bit of, of weight and uh, flies pretty good even at gross. Yeah. That's so rad. Um, I would love to talk to you about wingsuiting, which is on the very far end of aircraft spectrum from a uh, super cub. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you know, like I, I think that myself, like I thought of wingsuiting as some kind of little, like just make your body bigger and you kind of like can steer better. But as I've learned more and more about airfoils, it actually has kind of dawned on me that that is actually like an aircraft. You're actually flying a wing. It's actually a suit that becomes a wing when you fly it, which I think a lot of people don't understand. So maybe help me understand or help, help people understand like what a wingsuit is and what that experience of flying a wingsuit in the mountains is like, uh, let's leave skydiving out of it. Cause it's boring sure. in relation. Well, um, I mean, I, I don't think skydiving is boring. I think flying, uh, whether you or originate out of an airplane or off a cliff, uh, is flying. I mean, it's pretty cool to fly a wingsuit. Um, I do, it's, it's interesting. So when you track, um, as you know, from doing some skydiving, um, you know, basically anything falling, um, can fly or have forward speed if it's at the correct angle of attack. So, uh, in other words, you're falling through an air mass and there's resistance, uh, relative to surface area meeting, uh, relative wind. So if you tip that, surface area at the right angle, then it'll drive through that air mass and cover ground. And anytime you're covering ground for altitude loss, then you have a glide angle and you're flying, um, by definition. Right. So, so what's interesting is in the old days, a wingsuit was nothing more than surface area. Um, you know, the idea of, um, of having wing performance in the way that we would think about it relating to a hang glider, uh, you know, having an airfoil shape, having there be things like twist reflex and sweep to create pitch stability and span for performance and all of these things. Um, they didn't so much apply to wingsuits. I think it was more just deflection. And in other words, um, flying a hang glider, high performance hang glider is, or an airplane is all about, uh, the low pressure, uh, created by air surface connection to the top surface and the speed at which that air travels over the top surface relative to the bottom surface of the wing. And in a wingsuit, it's more like, um, you know, based on deflection and speed. So it's like holding your hand out the window of your truck when you're driving down the highway, the faster you go, the more supportive your hand is, um, you know, the more supported your hand is by the air mass that you're moving through. And, and yet now I think, um, you know, squirrel and Phoenix fly and, um, some of the other wingsuit companies out there have really gotten it to a point at which flying a big suit, you know, especially in a base jump where you're starting from zero airspeed, it starts out being deflection where you jump into a proper angle of attack. And when the relative wind 
that you're falling through interacts with that surface area, you start driving forward. But now, because of the shape of the suit, because of the internal fabric ribs, these these airfoil ribs that are sewn inside the the wings of the suit that are holding it and controlling it to stay in a very um, in a very particular shape. Uh, if you have proper tension on the suit, uh, once you start moving through the air mass at a certain speed, now the air surface connection to the top of the wing and the angle of attack and um, the amount of control of twist, um, the amount of reflex, uh, I think all of those add to the performance of the suit and clearly have um, increased the capabilities of jumpers all over the world in, in wingsuits. So it's pretty cool. Now I think we really are, people are, um, flying wings as opposed to just wearing suits that increase the yeah. surface area, um, which is rad, uh, because, you know, at one time, right? Like I think when I started ju base jumping wingsuits, a seven second rock drop or the, um, you know, um, a rock drop describes, how long it takes for something to fall off an exit and hit the ground. So if, uh, there, if you, if you dropped a rock off an exit and it hit the ground below at seven seconds, then you knew that you had exactly seven seconds and well, you had less than seven seconds to start the, the wing flying and that you had to outfly the grade or the train in front of you, um, to be able to safely jump that exit and make it to a landing zone. Uh, so intimate knowledge of the performance of the suit and the terrain that you were flying and the exit that you were jumping was, was critical to staying alive. And, um, I remember when we started seven seconds was a, an exit that people would walk down from on the regular because it was just, man, that's like cutting it super close. Wow. I mean, you know, if you weren't getting the suit flying, you were going to die. And now I mean, seven seconds is huge. Yeah. Do you walk up? People are like, Oh yeah, the exit's huge. It's like seven, seven and a half seconds. I mean, you got days, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, uh, jump in a, I remember, remember, uh, opening an exit with, um, a guy named Charlie Kerlankis and, and another dude, Sean Leary. Uh, we, we jumped a, a new exit together. It was, a, I think it was like a four and a half second rock drop. And it, for us, it was, it was like full value, you know, like full it's on value. the edge. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and now that's like commonplace. I mean, people jump five second rock drops and four and a half second rock drops commonly. I mean, it's like all over the place. So, um, you know, it does show that the performance of the wingsuits, um, and certainly the skill level and the m modes of instruction, um, have gotten a lot better. Um, uh, the equipment as the equipment improves, um, you know, people's skills, collectively improve as well. Um, so yeah, it's a, I mean, I, I think, you know, just like seatbelts didn't save anybody's lives. Uh, I don't think that the increase in performance and, or, uh, the increase in pilot skill is going to do anything to decrease the fatality rate or the, the risks involved, you know, everybody still has to mitigate risks and in the same way, but, but I do think that the performance is, increased the objects that people can jump safely and um and certainly has created some pretty unbelievable lines that people are flying and flying on a regular basis and with their skill set flying uh in a in a way that's responsible for them you know yeah it's really crazy just as so many people do this the edge gets pushed further and further and those wanting to be on the edge get to push further and further and further. And yeah, it's human nature. Yeah, of course. And there is such a, there is such a focus on like how many people die and how many people, you know, like that is a, a focal point for wingsuit base jumping. And I think that that, especially from the outside, you know, but I don't think that people understand experientially what that's like. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's why it would, why, why is that, why is that even remotely possible? You know, people think that anyone who paraglides or hang glides or any like has a death wish and is just like full of adrenaline all the time and like thinks that everything is a near miss, but it's really not, yeah. not all of it is a near miss. And, and there are these experiences that, that bring us back that make the whole thing worth it. What is yeah. the experience in a wingsuit? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think, um, I mean, if near misses are happening, then you're doing it wrong. You know, like I, I have, 
I've certainly had a couple of times uh, in my flying related life, whether it be in a hang glider, paraglider or wingsuit or, uh, you know, not, not so much an airplane, but um, where there, I would consider them very close calls. There's it's, I mean, there's no doubt that that's happened. I, I would be lying if I said it hadn't, but, but I've never, not once, not, not a single time jumped off a cliff head first, hoping for the best. Like it's always been yeah. exceptionally calculated and relative to my experience and skill set. So in other words, you know, when people see a video of somebody jumping off a cliff, they think that they're complete nutters, but they don't see the thousands of jumps that they've made out of an airplane and all of the, the dedication that they've um, put forth to, to be, um, to have earned the right to jump off that cliff that day and to feel uh, relatively secure that they're making a good decision to continue their lives doing what they love to do and not, um, you know, not doing something that, like I said, is hoping for the best. And, and um, you know, and yet risk is such a personal thing, right? It's, it's uh, interesting that um, although, you know, for an expert or a beginner, risk is exactly the, 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 the objective hazards are exactly the same. The risk is the same, whether I'm a, um, a master at something or a complete and utter beginner at something, the risk is exactly the same. How you mitigate that improves with experience and skill. Um, so the idea that, uh, that something is appropriate or not is a personal decision based on hopefully someone's ability to be very, very self-reflective and honest with themselves. And in the case of base jumping, I think that that honesty needs to be taken um, one step further in the way that those decisions are made with a discipline that keeps someone making flights that are below their, their limits. Um, if you're pushing at or above your limits in the same way that I might do so in climbing, uh, then that's going to bite me. And, and in a, the, the one thing that does, I mean, undeniably um, separate wingsuit base jumping or base jumping from other activities is that, you know, in other forms of aviation, there's generally a link or a chain of events that, that has to occur uh, for an accident to be catastrophic. And if you were to remove any link in that chain, then the accident might not occur. And in a base jump, that, that chain is usually one link. So if you make one decision, um, you know, there's like, you know, you're likely to, to lose your life. And, um, and so that needs to be taken in under consideration, certainly, um, because things happen pretty fast and, and a mistake is very costly, but at the same time, still the mitigation of risk is personal. And, uh, sometimes I would say most times, uh, flying a line uh, that is close to your limit, um, maybe still below, but close to your limit, isn't worth it, right? Like it's, um, it's more worth it to me to be able to jump tomorrow or jump the next day or jump for the rest of my life than it is to jump today, you know? Um, but some days it is worth it, you know? And, and you just have to, um, if, you know, nobody else has to understand that. Like, uh, that's a very personal decision as well, right? And if it adds a lot to your life um, and you feel like you can fly that line safely that day uh, and you've taken into consideration your family and all the people that care about you and love you and the benefits outweigh uh, the risks that particular day, um, you know, then it might be something that you feel like you want to go for on that particular day. And you know, I can't fault anybody for doing that, but, um, but you just need to be very honest with yourself about that and to say, uh, you know, to, to, to know what you're getting, what you're doing, you know, to, to be aware of that and to not, um, you know, I, I, like, like Will Gad says, you know, I think it's really important to recognize, uh, through experience that anytime we walk out the door, we could, we can lose the game. You know, we like, we can die doing the things that we love doing. And whether it's worth it or not is something that needs to be decided with discipline and without emotion with, with, um, you know, with logic. And yeah, uh, I, I think that's really important. And I think that almost, you know, a concept that I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking on is sovereignty, our ability to make decisions and have better discernment. And when you talk about, 
you know, walking down off of an exit or something being very personal, I think of the factors that push on me um, from other people that are like, just like my own dynamic between myself and any other person on that exit. And it's like, I guess, talk to me about the influence that other people can have on that. And, you know, you mentioned those decisions not needing an explanation, but talk to me about the impact of other people on exit with you or other people in the backseat of the airplane or those, you know, a passenger in your tandem paraglider. What are those influences and how do you think of sovereignty and having your own like standalone decision-making and sure, sure. Well, I, um, I can say a couple of things. One, um, I've met people who have been, you know, literally furious with me uh, for, you know, say base jumping a wingsuit in the past, being a dad and people who were inspired by it. Um, but what I can say is, is that, um, people who think that doing the things that make you, uh, fulfilled as a human being and, and, um, you know, allow for, for inspiration, motivation, uh, the choice to be happy, all of those things. If they think that that's selfish, um, I think that they're missing something. Uh, personally, I owe it to the people that I love to give the best, the very best version of myself to them when I interact with them. And, um, that that's not up to anybody else. It's for everybody to decide uh, for themselves. So I do think that, you know, before you point your finger at anybody, you know, really, really, really consider by looking hard in the mirror, if the statement you're making is about them or it's actually about you, you know, uh, that's important. But I also think that, um, for my own life, there are personal limits and those personal limits are, um, malleable and they're, um, they evolve and, uh, and they change every day, sometimes several times a day, meaning, um, you know, when I go and do something, um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not, um, making a decision on the fly, but I am taking into account everything, uh, the people that, you know, it would affect whether I'm successful or unsuccessful is a part of my decision-making. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to let somebody else help me to make a very personal decision. And do, do, there, there's a difference there. Uh, one is, is that I'm making a decision for myself based on how it might affect my family. And the other is that I'm not willing to be on an exit and allow someone else's decision to jump, influence my own decision to jump. Does, does that make sense? So, yeah. so, you know, making a decision for yourself or for, for me at least is, um, is, is super important. Uh, and that requires honesty, um, and the willingness to not care about, uh, the influence of others. In other words, just because I'm on an exit and the conditions are perfect and four of my friends jump, if I'm not feeling it or, you know, a few things happen that kind of give me a weird feeling, you know, I'm happy to walk down and high five them when I get back down and tell them that they had great exits and, and not even stress about whether or not, you know, uh, my decision was good or bad. It was obviously good because I'm still here and able to high five my friends and jump tomorrow. Right. And so, you know, does that mean that I'm constantly allowing fear to drive my decision-making? No, it means that I'm trying to be intimate with the difference between fear and doubt and realistic danger. And when I know that there is a danger that exists, and even if that danger takes the form of some voice in the back of my head, I listen to it because uh, if I do, even if I'm wrong, I still get to live another day. Whereas if I snuff it and say, Oh, that's just fear and doubt. Uh, you know, it could have been real. It could have been something, uh, some intuition telling me that I shouldn't be doing it. So when it comes to the, you know, what I would refer to as big boy or big girl games, you know, if you're going to play, if you're going to, if you're going to bring your party pants, man, you got to make good decisions. And sometimes that means, uh, saying no to yourself, you know? And then, um, the other part of it is, is when I do an activity that involves a passenger, someone else's safety, like, you know, when I fly them tandem in a paraglider or fly them tandem in a hang glider or they're sitting in the backseat of the airplane, I'm absolutely making decisions relative to their safety. 
a hundred percent and my my personal limits go way down and uh you know i'm unwilling to do things that i might be willing to do on my own even if with them sitting in the back seat or in front of me in a harness i feel completely and utterly safe about the decision i'm still conservative because uh i owe them the um the best chance of being 100% successful and nothing in life is 100% as you know. There's no guarantees. So if I can increase the odds to the point at which, you know, guess what, an hour flight as opposed to a 45 minute flight, if we don't go and try and pick up that thermal low on that ridge when it's kind of ratty and sharp on the edges, that then it's going to be a 45 minute flight because, you know, it's still going to be awesome. And uh, the most awesome part about it is, is that we both end up on the ground safe and, and have a post-flight hug, you know. Um, so yeah, when it comes to influence, man, I, I try and be true to myself. Um, I always see, uh, as much of that decision-making process from the right, from the right angle, which is that, um, it's most important to live another day and, and continue to recreate and, and hug my family and, and be there and be a, a positive influence, um, in the lives of the people that I love. And, um, and that that's always, whatever leads to that is always a good decision. Even if it means that I have, you know, quote unquote, less fun that day. I mean, who cares, right? Like yeah. life, life is amazing. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, uh, I feel like I'm just getting old enough to consider the implications of being a tandem paraglide pilot. Like I've got over a thousand flight hours and lots of acro and cross country. And I'm now like have had a tandem glider in my garage for quite some time. And I'm like, just now feel like I'm maturing to the level that I can actually consider someone else's safety over my own impulsive desires to have a lot of fun and do, you know, fun, yep, fun yep. things under the glider. So I'm glad I've. Well, and that's, that's the trick. That's, that's the trick right there. Um, Aries, what, what you just said is, is that um, you have to get to, uh, I think it's important for me to have gotten to a level uh, where my the impulsivity, uh, you know, is controllable, right? Like um, to have impulsive behavior is, is pretty normal when we're having fun because we're out there flying for, I said this in, in my recent podcast with Gavin, we're talking about the five hazardous attitudes, you know, it's, we're out there as seeking an emotional response. That's why we're fine. You know, we're out there to have a good time and to get emotionally fulfilled, you know, to be stoked. Right. And, um, and yet we have to make decisions with logic and not emotion when it comes to risk mitigation. So when you're flying with someone else, as you know, when you're flying from when you're flying by yourself, you can say as a logical and smart human being that you are, I'm not going to do this because that would be dangerous or, you know, like I, I don't want to, put this person in at risk. So we're going to maintain these minimums. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then when you're up there, um, and you're feeling it and you're just like, I totally got this. This is too much fun. I'm laughing my guts out. My passengers having a blast. We're both just like on cloud nine. I'm going to here, you know, guess what? So-and-so push on that riser. Let's, let's that, you know, um, like, it's easy to get in into the moment. You know, it's easy to say I, I'm at cloud base. I'm going for it. it's tiger country, but I got it. Th those that, that impulsivity, um, like I said, some days it's not worth it. Some days it is, but only when you're by yourself, should you be making that decision? Um, because impulsivity with someone else in the passenger seat will lead to a consequence that is unacceptable because someone else is involved. And, um, you know, even if they're agreeing with you, even if they're like, hell yeah, let's go, let's do it. I'm not saying don't do acro in a tandem wing. I, I'm, I, you know, I saw Dave Turner throwing down with passengers. And of course he has the experience and skill to do that st stupid safely, you know? Um, but he is doing it with his own personal limits in a way that he knows he can recover from just about anything. And, and I think that, um, that, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is that, um, it's not do or don't do, it's just be aware of that level of impulsivity and, um, you know, going for it in the middle of any flight is, is potentially going to have a consequence good or bad. And when there's someone else involved, I'd at least try and remember that, you know? Yeah. It's really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 
it, um, you know, it kind of brings us back to what we were talking about before we started recording of our own personal decision-making impacting, not just our passenger and especially with coronavirus amidst this coronavirus, it's like our own decisions have profound impacts on the world. And I think that the reality is that they always have. We've always been so interconnected. We've always been so interdependent, even though we don't like to admit it. And the veil of illusion is being pulled away that is showing us how interconnected we are and how our personal decisions can affect the commu- the neighbors, the communities, the states, the countries, the you know humanity at large. And how we you know, how we face that responsibility is really, um, you know, that's really important. How do we make collective decisions? How do we take collective action and how do we discern what is best practice as an individual, as it expounds onto the impact that it has on ourselves, the planet, um, you know, and yeah. And I think it all, you know, sort of boils down to the same parameters that we try and live by, um, as enthusiasts or, or athletes or, you know, pilots or alpinists or whatever is just, um, you know, to, to earn the right to do the thing you have to, you have to educate yourself, you know, you really have to do the work. And, um, you know, in the case of coronavirus, um, I think it's a real testament to the fact that, uh, worldwide people are, I mean, you know, in our political environment, our current political environment, there's so much divisiveness and you're starting to see some unity. You know, you're start, we're starting yeah. to see people come together and say, this is, you know, social distancing is going to, based on the science, based on uh, the data, is going to flatten the curve of the spread of this, infe- or this, this virus um, and, you know, the disease that it, that it causes. Um, so let's let's social distance. Let's uh, minimize our contact. Let's respect each other. Let's especially try and minimize um, our exposure to people in in risk categories. And um, and I think that put all the fear aside. I think that people are in large doing that, whether the government is telling us we should or not. And I I think people are instead of complaining about it, getting behind it, which is cool. You know, I think that that's. Um, an amazing thing. I'm really proud of people for doing that. Uh, we I just, agree. Yeah. We just went on statewide lockdown here in Montana and, you know, obviously you can still go out, you can still get groceries and medication and, um, you know, even recreate, you can even spend time in nature as long as, you know, you're doing it responsibly like by yourself or, uh, with a family member that you're quarantining with anyways. Um, I think that these, these, real life issues are a reflection of, of how we might handle something, be it worse, you know, like God forbid we have a virus that is, you know, has a 50% mortality rate, you know, how are people going to react? Right. So, um, seeing how people are reacting is, is, um, is I think both encouraging and uplifting. I do think that like we were talking about before we started recording, the fear part is unnecessary. Um, it's, it's natural. I'm not faulting anybody for it. It's certainly human nature. But um, like I was saying, you know, if, if I'm standing watching my house burn, uh, what I don't need is 100 people behind me yelling fire as loud as they can in my ear. Um, because I know my house is on fire. I can feel the heat on my face. So in other words, what I'm not saying is is people are overreacting. They're not. I mean, this is there's real life hazard. There's, there's, um, you know, objective hazards to consider, to educate ourselves about and to act appropriately and responsibly, uh, you know, in relation to, but I, but I don't think that this, the spread of fear, the constant media and social media posts that are sticking fingers in people's chests about how they're handling it or what they're doing. Um, and the constant reminder is doing much other than causing people to go and clean the shelves of toilet paper and food and, um, you know, look at each other in a way that isn't as helpful. And, and I also think that, um, that, you know, certainly community-based and economy-based, uh, we're going to be more affected by the fear than we are the virus. Uh, I, like I said, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take this seriously. I'm not saying we shouldn't be socially and, you know, responsible and, and, um, you know, disciplined relative to our communities and, and, and compassionate and caring and 
certainly to our healthcare system and our healthcare workers. I mean, for God's sakes, I this some of my friends are dealing with stuff that I mean, it's it's just horrendous. It's it's really really bad. Um, but but I I do think that we need to uh, answer the call with with compassion and and not fear. And um, you know, instead of buying thirty rolls of toilet paper you know, buy 10 and make sure that you save 20 for the next two people waiting. Um, you know, let's, let's think of each other and, um, and educate ourselves and continue to get the data, uh, to dismiss misleading and, um, disruptive information that's being disseminated. That's just false, uh, and try and, um, really unify and, and be there for our neighbors and our families and, and, uh, we'll get through this, you know? I agree. And that's a message that I'm really grateful that you brought and that I appreciate you holding and sharing. And that's something I'm trying to curate on the podcast of how we can be more resilient, how we can find the silver linings in this to come together well, as opposed to break apart. And yeah, um, and we're, we're all in this together, you know, I mean, I can, like it or not. Right. And I can say, you know, my family, although there's been um, a bit of disruption, people feeling mildly unwell. My sister-in-law was, was quite sick, uh, and very possibly could have the, or could have had the coronavirus. Um, and I know people who have had it, uh, we're relatively healthy. So it, you know, it's easy for me to, um, to go outside for a dog walk living in Montana, but you know, it's really important for people like me to, at least in my own self-reflection to remember that, there are a lot of people in places like New York and LA or, or other towns that don't have access to outdoor recreation and are living in an apartment and or um, struggling to pay their bills and don't have anywhere to go other than staying inside and are going stir crazy and or have family members that are deeply impacted by this virus, uh, parents that have died or are struggling for their lives. And so, you know, being that we're all in this together also takes remembering that without spreading fear, but also remembering that to be empathetic and to uh, remember that just because it's not impacting, you know, my family per se in a way that is life changing or life ending, that doesn't mean that that's not happening all over the world. And, um, you know, once again, instead of bringing fear to me, that should, that should bring a feeling of compassion and tolerance and understanding and, willingness to help when I can, if I can. And, um, you know, that again, hopefully will promote unity as opposed to divisiveness. And, um, that's, that's what we need right now. in, in society, I think more than ever with, with the way politics and, and world leadership is, is, has been driving us, you know, I totally agree, man. I think that's a great place to sign off. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. It's, it's great to connect with you and uh, I hope I hope before too long that you can be in the backseat of the airplane and we'll be flying into some fun adventure together. That would be super cool. Yeah, we will make it happen, Jeff. And let's right do on, this Eric. again soon. Thanks, man. See you, man. Cheers. Okay, guys, there you have it. Awesome talk with Jeff Shapiro. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate your time and your perspective. If you guys enjoy this podcast, please share it and consider donating. That is paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate the support. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane. I got so many awesome podcasts coming up, everybody. We've got uh, tomorrow an interview with Matt Cohn, who is a meditation instructor, talking about how meditation can help us in the time of crisis. I've got podcasts up with people who are literally designing new ways of humanity working together, new ways of educating, and uh, an interview with an ecologist coming up talking about how the crisis is helping the environment. So much stuff, okay? So much stuff. I'm working hard. Consider encouraging me at the very least because what we definitely need is courage and how we get courage is we encourage each other, okay? Love you. Thank you. See you in the next episode.